0: Welcome to the Exalt Podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon.
1: And I'm Sophia Hagalani albov We are super excited for the conversation that you are about to hear. I'm so excited that I don't even want to waste an extra second with you having to hear me. So we're going to kick it over to our guest just immediately. So, Jonathan, would you like to tell our listeners who you are and what you do?
2: Of course. My name is Jonathan Alakönni. I'm a PhD student at the University of Helsinki working for the Institute of Atmospheric and Earth Systems Research, or INAR as the abbreviation goes. I work mostly with uh, aquatic carbon fluxes, so I study how different aquatic or freshwater ecosystems emit uh, and also bind carbon, uh, mostly in form of carbon dioxide and methane, into themselves and out into the atmosphere.
0: Thank you so much, Yunatan. It's a real pleasure to have you on here. I mean, it's so nice to have somebody from outside the social sciences and humanities. Uh, (laughs) Sadly, not not as common on here, but it is really wonderful to get to have some true interdisciplinarity. This is really fascinating. But I guess before we get into more of what this actually means with this uh, binding carbon, how did you get into this?
2: Uh that's a long story.
0: Uh, originally, I started to study at the University of Helsinki uh,
2: back in 2011. I started studying astronomy, uh, but um, decided after a couple of years that the funding was not excellent in that field. And I would have to compete with some of my very smart and, and very good friends. And it did not feel very comfortable. I also developed this uh, sort of an interest also for the sort of the local planetary affairs as well. Uh, and decided that that uh, geophysics of the hydrosphere sounded like a very interesting thing. I've, I've always liked the aquatic environments, the sea, the lakes, rivers, whatnot. Water has always been fascinating for me. So I, I decided that this is a good niche to, to, to fill in the academic field. So I did my bachelor's as well as my master's, having my major as the geophysics of the hydrosphere. And then later on got hired for a PhD position here working with the eddy covariance method and aquatic fluxes of uh, greenhouse gases, which is a fairly hot topic nowadays in this uh, era of climate change and whatnot. I guess our listeners are somewhat familiar with the subject.
1: I don't know. Have people heard of climate change before? No, I'm just joking. I'm sure they're quite familiar with the subject. Um, So thank you very much for giving us a little bit of insight into the path that took you to be doing this research. So now the question is, and I already apologize in advance because as Christopher mentioned, we do come from the social science side of things, but so excited to have an interdisciplinary conversation. But you're going to have to break it down for me a bit. Carbon binding, geophysics of the hydrosphere, oh my. Tell us a little bit about like what this actually means in practice. like what are you doing?
2: Well, maybe we go word by word. So geophysics is um, the study of our planet uh, through the eyes of a physicist. So we are interested in uh, in, for example, the transport of heat, transport of matter or fluxes of stuff through time and space. So, for example, for us, uh, let's say plankton life, for example, is just scatterers in our data or noise in in our measurements. But we are very uh, interested in the exact physical world and not so much then on the living side of things. Of course, uh, these things do affect the physical world. But our methods are mostly to do with the actual transport of matter and heat would somehow uh, maybe condensate the field that we are studying. Uh, Hydrosphere in general, meaning anything to do with water. So on our planet, that would be oceans, lakes, rivers, snow, glaciers, precipitation, water vapor in our atmosphere, whatever. And um, carbon binding, what would this mean? So my field of study then with the carbon fluxes and carbon exchange is to figure out how each Type of an ecosystem, our group rather. Uh, I work in a micrometeorology group, and we can get back to what micrometeorology means. But so we study how different ecosystems emit carbon dioxide, uh, methane, nitrous oxide, uh, carbonyl sulfide, uh, all these different gases that are uh, emitted by, by our ecosystems, and trying to figure out which. Ecosystems, locations, latitudes, altitudes, whatnot—how they are capable of binding carbon from our atmosphere, but also how they are releasing it at the same time. And um, yeah, this field of micro meteorology that we are studying is well meteorology of very small scale. Um, we we are mostly interested in a scale from ranging from sub millimeter to maybe a couple of hundred meters. Uh, and the method we employ is called the edipovariance method, which is based on essentially measuring the wind and gas concentration in air with very high frequency in order to catch the actual transport of gases in, a, in the vertical direction.
0: Wow, thank you. I mean, a whole lot in there and a lot of new words. Uh, I mean, I've always loved sciences and things. Uh, but yeah, like a lot of new things coming in for me. And I think something. That I'm really curious about here, and with all of this, you were talking about like aquatic ecosystems and binding carbon. I feel like you hear in the news, of course, with climate change, like permafrost and carbon being bound in soil, but I, I feel like you don't hear as much about carbon being bound in water. I mean, it might seem a silly question, but how big is this? Like what kind of numbers are we talking here? What what does this mean? Per square
2: meter, the numbers are not that big. Uh, but since, for example, we here in the boreal zone or in the subarctic, lakes and rivers form a major part of the whole surface area. Uh, so thus they become a very uh, major part of it as well, of course. Um, how do they do this? Well, mostly they, there's, always, there's always some plant life in water. Essentially, any body of water on our planet will contain some form of life capable of photosynthesis Uh, so they are capable of uh, binding carbon from the atmosphere into their bodies numbers wise i cannot give you an an exact number because that is also something we are trying to figure out (laughs) currently It's, it's not so obvious there is very little data actually existing on the capability of lakes for example emitting or binding carbon the second method of binding carbon for lakes is the sedimentation of organic matter. So rivers transport, you know, dead leaves, needles, some other detritus that you will find on the forest floor, and then it can sink to the bottom and it can store and sequester carbon for quite a long time. So if you take a boring sample, uh, not boring in the sense that it would not be interesting, but but uh, as a as a board sample of a a tube you take out of the sediment of a lake, you will find dead leaves that are from the end of the ice age. So it's a a very long-term storage of carbon, but the lakes also are a source of carbon into the atmosphere through, for example, uh, anoxic conditions in the bottom of the lake, causing um, methane to be formed there, which of course is a very potent greenhouse gas. This This dynamic is something we are very interested in uh, because lakes in the boreal zone are under a lot of pressure from climate change. Since the phenomena we call the Arctic amplification is something that we feel very, uh, very strongly in in the boreal zone lakes. The ice-on period uh, is shortening and eventually might even disappear from southern Finland uh, by the end of this century. And these changes in the lakes can, for example, cause them to be even bigger sources of carbon uh, into the atmosphere.
1: That's really interesting. I've actually heard this term Arctic amplification before, but you know, I have to admit that I wasn't really ever sure quite what that meant. But... Before we go any further, is it okay if I swing us back to that term that you brought up earlier, micrometeorology? What does that mean? What kind of scope are you then looking at with your work?
2: Oh, I'm I'm happy to answer. Uh, so meteorology in general, as usually public knows it, is is you know what you get after the news broadcast, and and they they uh predicting the tomorrow's weather and then you get disappointed by the by the false predictions because you get a shower of rain instead of sunshine, whatever. That is usually called uh, synoptic meteorology. So they are talking of scales from, let's say, 10 kilometers to some thousands of kilometers in distance. Then there are phenomena that are called uh, mesoscale uh, meteorology. Uh, that would be from, let's say, hundreds of meters to about 10 kilometers. So, for example... Um, like uh, whirlwinds and and whatnot can be in in that scale of of phenomena. But in micrometeorology, we go beyond that into the smaller scale. Uh, So essentially, we are interested in eddies or whirls in air. Uh, When we are close to the surface of Earth, wind is interacting with the surface because there is friction between the two. This means that wind that... Higher up in the atmosphere, follows very nice, uh, smooth uh, trajectories uh, where two particles of air or, or parcels of air do not cross each other. The flow is laminar, as we call it; it is smooth. But close to the surface, due to the friction, uh, we have turbulence. So the wind becomes more chaotic, uh, full of eddies or, or small whirls, and 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 the scale of these 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 whirls or uh, is is from the scale of you know sub millimeter to maybe tops 100 200 meters. So we study then at the core of our our method, which we call the eddy covariance or EC for for short, but uh, is that we measure all the three components of wind, so sort of X, y and Z component of wind uh, 10 times per second, which is enough for us to start to resolve actually separate individual eddies in the air Uh, and at the same time 10 times a second we also measure the gas concentrations in air for example in my studies that would be co2 and methane and by calculating what is the concentration of these gases when the world is transporting air up but then also conversely what's the concentration when the wind direction is predominantly sort of down so by studying the vertical wind, we can calculate how much matter is being transported into each direction. So, for example, if the surface is binding CO2 into itself, for example, through photosynthesis, uh, then we see that on average, there is more movement of CO2 towards the surface. And of course, the opposite is true if the surface is emitting such gases. So essentially, I'm <laughs> you could say that I'm studying... Uh, about a couple of cubic centimeters of air above a lake. But since the the field of the wind uh, is more or less on average uniform over a lake that I would be studying, uh, we can assume a footprint area uh, where where these conditions that we measure inside the small volume of the anemometer, the, the wind measurement device. Uh, we can apply that for an area that would be, depending on the weather conditions, some tens of meters to some hundreds of meters in distance. And we can make average values then for about half an hour time scale for the lake and how it is emitting. So we see daily variation in there. We see how different weather patterns uh, affect it, how uh, different thermal conditions in the lake are affecting the fluxes of gases out from there. So, yeah, essentially. In short, I'm studying very small worlds of air above lakes.
1: I like it. And then a really quick follow up on that. And I hope that any natural scientists listening aren't like laughing at me right now. But like, if you're studying a few square centimeters above a lake, like how do you choose which ones? Is it only one per lake? Is it many per lake? Like, is it near the shore? Is it in the center? Is it both? Ooh, how does it come together?
2: That's actually a very good question. I think one could say it's a it's a philosophical question of what is representative anyways. Um, And this is one question that we are working on. It's a weakness of the method is that we are bound to a, a point measurement, essentially. Not really a point. So the device itself is measuring a very small volume of air. And as I said, we we try to expand that to a slightly larger area, some hundreds of meters tops. of course, when this method is being done over a forest where these instruments need to be a lot higher, they can be up to 150 meters in the air at the top of a tower. So then we get square kilometers of area. But over a lake, we usually measure from a two meter height. So the footprint, the source area is quite small. So then there are good questions that uh, what I, for example, noticed in my research studying this um, Lake Pallasjärvi in Lapland near the Pallas Fjell uh, is that places which are shallow and contain a lot of vegetation are completely different in how they emit, for example, methane into the atmosphere. And it is a good question to think, what is then representative? And this is a problem that is being discussed because the shore areas are very different from the deep basin, in the middle of a lake. Quite typically in limnology or in lake research, very typically samples have been always taken you know, from the middle of the lake because that's the most representative part. because It's the average location of the lake, but there might be strikingly different conditions near the shores or near the center of the lake. But we can discern, for example, from which direction the wind is blowing in each situation. That is one way of trying to figure out what kind of an area on average is affecting our fluxes that we are measuring. We anyways need to filter out directions which are, for example, too close to a forest uh, because that would be disturbing our our measurements quite significantly.
0: Wow, I mean, that's really fascinating, especially like the different complexities to it. I mean, I imagine you know in Finland. There are a few forests around, so I guess it's got to be kind of tough to separate that out a bit and find a place that's far enough away, but also close enough uh, so you're not totally like, you know, ignoring that plant life that's closer to the shore. Something I want to ask about with this kind of like rewinding back a bit when you're talking about anoxic conditions at the bottoms of lakes and the the sediment forming methane. Of course, I mean you know, anoxic without oxygen. I did scuba diving for many years. I really love it. And I think of that as a very extremely deep place. Like, how deep do you need to be? I wouldn't think of lakes normally, or like your average lake being deep enough for that. So I mean, how deep do you have to be, I guess? Might be a silly question slash, are there a lot of lakes that do this or... Uh, It's not a silly question at all. Maybe this is a
2: common knowledge for our Finnish listeners, but uh, Finnish lakes in general suffer from lack of oxygen almost every winter and almost every lake. It's very typical. You don't need to be very deep. The problem, I I wouldn't even call it a problem uh, because it's, it's a thing that happens naturally, but human influence, for example, through nutrient runoff makes it worse but when lakes get ice cover uh, the exchange of oxygen uh, between water and the atmosphere essentially ceases to exist and then there is life that are uh, heterotrophs so they consume oxygen instead of producing that so they eat up and, and fish can suffocate in a lake during winter and that results in a mass fish die off and this can be mitigated with pumps pumping air artificially into the into the lake but I think that is kind of weird because it's not really addressing the main issue, which is uh, don't let all the nutrients that you put on the fields, expensive nutrients by the way, run off into these lakes. <laughs> but it's not always uh, that simple. I'm I'm just a physicist studying uh, flows of matter, and I'm not a, a farmer who is trying to make a living off of their fields. So it's uh, not so simple always.
1: I mean, even that right there is a really good small insight into the complexities. You know, in social sciences, we often say that, you know, these concurrent environmental crises are wicked problems and that they are very complex and that a lot of different things come together. And I think what you said just now illustrates that like really beautifully. It's the chemicals from the field, it's the ice cover that's a natural thing. It's, you know, a lot of things coming together to create these situations that are creating these situations that are contributing to the overarching phenomena of climate change. So one thing that I'm gathering then from what you've just told us, does this mean that you are encouraging ice fishing?
2: I'm always encouraging ice fishing. Yes, yes, definitely.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, I think we've just upped our listenership in probably at least Finland and upstate New York with the encouragement of ice fishing. And I mean, I, I find this really interesting too, because you know, it's in, in upstate New York, like we have many lakes and things like that in the mountains. And we had a lot of issues of lakes becoming anoxic, but in relation to like acid rain from the Midwest. When I was a kid, like massive, massive issue of dozens of lakes just dying off. So I mean, this is really interesting because I never heard it discussed as like a natural phenomena too. Uh always just with the the external thing. So I really appreciate that nuance as well. But with all of this, something I'd like to get into a bit more is we've talked outside of this, and I know you're working on this project, and I think it'd be really interesting for our listeners to hear about it. So would you mind telling us like, what you're working on? How does all this come together with your project and PhD and everything?
2: Yeah, a lot of the work that we do here at the Micrometeorology uh, Group at the University of Helsinki is centered around this European-wide uh, project or a research infrastructure, uh, rather, called ICOS, the Integrated Carbon Observation System, where the idea is that that just as we have weather stations now all over the globe, although we could still have a bit more to make better forecasts uh, and models for our climate, but it's global uh, on every continent, and even in the sea, we have meteorological observations. Our goal is to have an equal or or near-equal network of carbon observation systems, so it's like a weather station plus. Of course, the equipment needed for making these eddy covariance measurements on gas concentrations and fluxes in and out of soil and bodies of water is, is much more complex, requires much more maintenance, they are more expensive, the data analysis is much more complicated. But Currently, we run in Europe a station network of around 150 stations in various different kinds of ecosystems, let that be peatlands, agricultural fields, uh, coastal areas, lakes. We try to do things as, as diverse as possible. Of course, sometimes it is very difficult because these machines, these instruments require a fair bit of power, uh, not terribly much, but, but it's still quite difficult if you are in a very remote location it's very difficult to do it because you need to put a power line in there and it's not exactly cheap or even feasible in many cases Finland in that sense is uh, in a fairly unique position since we have a very broad and good quality uh, road network Uh, we have a good electrical grid we can connect to quite easily so we have these ecosystems that otherwise would be very remote in, in many other places of the world, uh, fairly close by to population centers that provide us with enough services that we can run these kinds of measurements. But in the end, what ICOS aims to do is to create indeed this network that we would have a holistic understanding of the exchange of carbon mostly CO2 and methane but other gases as well through our ecosystems we, we essentially only have very good guesses and approximations on on how much for example a forest is able to to sequester carbon out of the atmosphere and we have only had the technology to really truly on an ecosystem scale try to measure this for a little over 20 years let's say 25 years there has been routine, continuous measurements of such variables. So this is all a very fresh science still, but but we are a fair bit into the process at this point, having a, a station network of around 150 and adding new ones every year. We are building more and more robust understanding of how our different ecosystems are. A, sort of in natural way, uh, exchanging carbon with the atmosphere, but B, also as a um, how the human influence is affecting these fluxes of greenhouse gases.
1: I really appreciate this insight into the larger project. So what does your day-to-day work actually look like? Which facet of this are you investigating?
2: Uh, I mostly work with the data processing from our southern Finland lake site, uh, which is called Lake Kuivervi, very imaginative name for a lake, For so uh, a dry lake. Uh, I can assure you, It is not a dry lake. It definitely has some water in it. So I don't know where this creative name comes from. But it is a little bit north from Tampere. We have a a forest uh, measurement site in there as well. Uh, I think that Lake Kuiverme might be the most instrumented lake uh, in Finland and one of the most instrumented lakes in in the whole world. Uh, So I am taking care of part of the uh, data processing. So... The eddy covariance method produces a lot of numbers and those need to be crunched uh, by someone. We have specialized software for it, uh, but it still requires some manual work to go through. So for example, that is uh, what I'm working on. Also, as we have now accumulated a fairly long time series from this lake on on carbon fluxes, but also the thermal stratification, the gas concentrations in water, the turbidity or the, the clarity. Uh, of the water, whatnot. We have plenty of data from there. I am also writing this article, sort of on the longer term changes that we can observe in the lake and how it behaves from day to day, season to season, year to year. Trying to build some kind of a picture on on how lakes, for example, in in a in a boreal zone would in general function. That lake is a fairly typical example of a forest lake, a lake in the middle of a managed forest. Fairly dark water, not extremely deep, but not exactly shallow uh, either. So, and not not the smallest one, but also not a huge like. It's, it's super typical in 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 many ways. So in, in that sense, also uh, maybe one could say quite quite boring, but also it's representative. I would say so. That would be my my day to day work on on these longer term projects. Or I wouldn't or call, calling Icos, for example, a project is sort of a diminutive. For it, uh, it's it's actually a research infrastructure that is that is running currently. We also have some shorter-term projects that we are working on currently. So this other project I was working on over the summer, doing some field work, was um, this river campaign on River Tenojoki uh, in Finnish Lapland, uh, also partially Norwegian Lapland, uh, which is part of this European Union-funded green feedback uh, project, where the idea is to figure out... The human effects on, well, both vertical but also lateral carbon fluxes. So, how carbon is transported from one ecosystem to another. For example, how water is running off and discharging through the forest floor into rivers, and what kind of gases or or chemicals or other properties it is carrying with itself out into the sea finally when it discharges out. And this is also something that is a fairly little understood thing. It is quite rare that we have been doing or that anyone for that matter has been doing river measurements of carbon fluxes, again, especially in this, in these northern Arctic and subarctic regions, because usually these places are just so far off and, and so difficult to reach that it just logistics-wise becomes very complicated. But in Finland, river Tenojoki, although it has essentially zero agriculture or industrial activity within its catchment area, it still has a road that goes next to it for kilometers and kilometers. And we were able to deploy a boat uh, and, and make some measurements in the river, which in many other places of the world, like comparative ecosystems can be found in Alaska, northern Canada. Uh, the remote places of Siberia they are not exactly known for their accessibility even with if you have a helicopter in use. So Finland and Nordic countries in general are fairly special in this sense that we have uh, well of course we have human influence but but that we have some at least a resemblance of the infrastructure uh, near these far-off places. So but why we chose River Tenoyoki for our research was that indeed, because it is so little impacted by human activity like agriculture or industry or uh, hydropower, that it is a good example of a river in high latitudes that is essentially in natural state. And what we were measuring there was that it hardly emits anything in regards to greenhouse gases. It's It's a small source. Uh, Data processing is still not quite ready, but preliminarily it shows that it's like we can barely detect a flux of greenhouse gases out there. It is there, but it is is very small. This goes into stark contrast with other rivers that are bound by dams and hydropower plants in, for example, in Finnish Lapland, uh, where these large artificial lakes or reservoirs are created for the needs of the hydropower plant. And those lakes cover a large area of land that was previously peatland and forest. So there is a lot of biomass under the water, which is subjected to anoxic conditions, which results in the production of methane. So, for example, these lakes, when the river has been turned into a lake, it changes from very small source of greenhouse gases. And actually, the the forest and the peatland are, are sinks for these things, it turns it into a source of, uh, a rather significant source of methane. So yeah, hydropower, even in high latitudes, is not exactly free of greenhouse gas emissions, although people marketing these things might want you to think otherwise.
0: Wow, I mean, this is really, really fascinating and and striking. I mean, this could be a thing of coming from the social sciences. Usually when talking critically of hydropower, though, it's around the sort of destruction and changes that happen around the immediate creation. But, you know, you kind of, I don't know, maybe it's, again, maybe it's just social sciences, maybe it's the way it's projected in popular media. But you usually think like, all right, once this is there, you know, this is helping, you know, have quote unquote green energy. And there's not carbon coming from this or being sequestered. This is a positive thing once it's done. So I find it really interesting that there's an impact of dams on the amount of carbon being bound in water. How extreme is this? Would you mind unpacking this a little bit for us? Uh, well, of course, it depends on the on the conditions on, on a given reservoir or a,
2: or a lake. From what I've understood, it's worse off in warmer climates because in general, all all biological activity is slower in the winter when the water is like plus two or three degrees at the the bottom of more shallow lakes in here. So, of course, biological production is significantly slower. Don't quite quote on me on this. I won't be finding a a reference for this or citation right away, but but from what I've understood, somewhere closer to equator, hydropower can be as emissive in regards to greenhouse gases, as is producing electricity with diesel generators, or we are speaking of similar range of numbers. So it's definitely not free of greenhouse gas emissions. It's just indirect. Of course, the turbines and the generators aren't producing it, but it's it's the other paraphernalia <laughs> that you need for, for hydropower plants, like, like the reservoirs and the, the biomass that is trapped under there. But this is true also for for uh, other forms of carbon binding. So uh, a very hot topic recently, which I'm not a specialist on, but but still uh, is quite quite close to my field is is this concept of blue carbon. So so the sea and the ocean actually is a very potent sequester of of carbon and. And the humankind has done a terrible job at, at at managing these blue carbon uh, sequestration places. For example, with bottom trawling or drilling oil and gas on these uh, shallow continental shelves, where a lot of biological activity and especially photosynthesis and 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 binding of carbon happens, we have destroyed large parts of these natural uh, carbon binders. So it's a it's a double whammy. So we emit the stuff, but we also destroy very effectively the places that could potentially be very good sequesterers. And and one thing that is a very controversial topic nowadays is that in Europe in general, companies and governments are planning for huge uh, wind power farms by the coastal areas in Europe. And it's not at all obvious what the effect of these plants, these huge towers and turbines will be on the ability of the seafloor to be a sequester for blue carbon. And it might be Of course, these are just models at this point, because measuring these things is actually incredibly complicated and and sometimes not even allowed because it is so dangerous. But models sometimes predict that building such a huge wind farm in a continental shelf near Europe can turn a huge swath of the ocean floor from a carbon sink to a carbon source. And it might be per square meter, again, something measly small. But but we are talking of massive surface areas and, and the mast, the turbine mast is... Itself, it looks like it's just, a you know, you put a matchstick on the the sea and how much can it affect? But the amount of turbulence it creates in the wake of it when um, ocean currents are moving past these farms, it changes the physical conditions in the water quite significantly and, for example, causes deposition of sediment over marine plants, which essentially destroys them and, and destroys their ability to sequester carbon. So when we are being marketed, these methods of production for energy that are carbon neutral or, or, or zero C energy, whatever, they hardly ever are because we are affecting our, our environment in such a massive scale that, that, that the repercussions are hard to predict without hard data.
1: Wow. You know, I've heard about some of the things that can come along as like negative uh, externalities with these kind of projects, but I hadn't specifically heard about this before. Is perhaps this one of like the false promises of green transition?
2: There might be a difference between false promises and not having enough information. Uh, and, and just being ignorant on the big scale. We have the mindset now in, in Europe that we really want to succeed in the green transition. And it feels like we have all the technologies that we, we have right now, but it is always... When we are talking of such huge scale of things that things become very, very complicated. And for example, our climate system is notoriously known for its very complex internal network of connections within there. Uh, I always like to uh, compare it to, do you know how at the amusement parks you always have those games where you pull a string and then there is a a little toy at the end and you you win that prize? climate system is like that, but you have like 20 of these games interconnected to each other. So you never know that when you pull one rope, what effect it will have down the line in a a larger system. So this is why I think it is absolutely crucial that we have current real-time true standardized information on the effects that changes in our environment have on fluxes of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. All these things are interconnected and, and we cannot escape the truth and and building good models that we can forecast uh, into the future, it is crucial for these models that we have good information. And this is a large part of what our uh, group here at University of Helsinki is trying to figure out how these ecosystems work. What are the strings that are being pulled? And can we maybe even create experiments where we artificially pull a little string and try to figure out how it affects these down the line And there has been decades of work uh, involved in this already that we have built this uh, large network of measurement stations for for these fluxes uh, that we now only recently have had the technology, but immediately started to construct this uh, larger image of it and figuring out the need for this. And of course, the recognition that ICOS, for example, has had from the European Union scale really proves that we are on the right track uh, with what we are doing currently.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, thank you. Like, I mean, thank you for sharing that. Thank you and everyone for doing the work that you're doing. I mean, it's shocking. I mean, to me, every time hearing this, like, I I know it's speculative, but the idea that like hydropower near the equator, even the fact that like, even if it's speculative, the idea that it could even be remotely close to diesel power generation is shocking. And I know too, like, you know, we we don't want to get too far into the speculative, but even with the green transition stuff, you see corporations, like kind of ignoring these sorts of wicked problems and how interconnected things are to try to push for things. I mean, I I remember uh, probably months ago seeing an article popping up from The Economist, I think. I always like to follow them to see what the neoliberals are saying about stuff. And uh, it was an op-ed from somebody who was just like, oh, you know, don't worry about what the left is saying about strip mining on the ocean floor to get like lithium and stuff, it's probably not going to be as bad as their doom saying. And we really need to get this green transition done. But I mean, that's that's more of an aside, but I mean, this is just, you know, again, such a powerful, fascinating thing to hear. I mean, even as people doing PhDs in social sciences related to environmental things, we don't even hear about this. And it's so important to get this out there because I think that it's important to be able to push back on this, you know, green transition will save everything narrative. Uh, that that's out there, not saying that we shouldn't be transitioning away from fossil fuels and stuff, but you know people need to understand the nuance and that there are impacts and it's not just a all right well, we built a wind farm in the coast, and we're good now forever i know that's that's a bit of a bit of an aside
2: but but i I definitely understand this and I want to make clear that I am now speaking of my my personal opinion, but I think it becomes very complicated when we try to solve the problem, for example, of our energy production with the green transition without the possibility of actually decreasing our consumption. That that is completely out of discussion. That would be a political suicide for any party to try to discuss, that we would actually decrease the consumption of energy and goods and things we need, strip mine from from the mountaintops or, or whatever, that this is it's just completely out of discussion, essentially. And uh, I think we are leaving the easiest, the, the most obvious solution out of what we could consider as a, as a green transition. But of course, I'm just a geophysicist, you know. I <laughs> I don't know what other ramifications this the, this sort of an action would have. But But for example, it's for any democratic society, it would feel essentially impossible to make the green transition in a way that we would just close off power plants and not build new ones. I'm afraid that we might end up in a, in a sort of an infinite loop of creating more issues with, with the te- technological solutions that we try to figure out. And, and we already, with the limited knowledge that we have, we know for a fact that each way of producing electricity on this planet does have a negative impact on the ecosystems or or the environment in general, whether that be from the extraction of raw materials for these machines or... Or the actual operation of them or or whatever. It's there's always a downside and, and the only clean solution, truly clean solution, is to get rid of it completely.
0: Absolutely. I mean with all this, I, I always think of uh old episode of The Simpsons where I think it was like, you know, the city was overrun by snakes. And so, like, to get rid of the snakes, they brought in, like, some type of, I think, like, bird or something like that that feeds on the snakes that are running out of control. And then this is like, what's going to happen when the birds go out of control? Oh, we're going to bring in a bunch of gorillas that eat birds. What happens when the gorillas go out of control? What's the beauty part? They just freeze to death in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I digress. Thank you so much. I mean, this is, this has been really so fascinating. I mean, it's been a real blind spot for us, not having many, or possibly you might even be the first natural scientist we've had on here. And I mean, we could keep picking your brain for ages, but we've taken up a bunch of your time today. You've been so kind to come and speak with us. We're getting towards the end of our time. And at the end of every episode, we like to do something.
1: Are we gonna dance?
0: You can dance if you want to. You can <laughs> leave the pod behind, <prejudice> <laughs> but that is not quite what we're going to do. Thank God. <laughs> Instead, it is quack 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 s Question time. It's question at the end of every episode we like to ask our guests the question it is a sort of call to action for our listeners they're hearing this fascinating conversation they want to be able to get engaged with it in their daily lives so is there anything that you could recommend to our listeners that they can do in their daily lives this could be thinking about something it could be reading something it could be you know contemplating their place in the world just anything that you could recommend
2: well i feel it would be a uh... It would be good for everyone to really ponder and think and observe in your daily life and in in the surroundings where you move, to observe and see how carbon, for example, is in perpetual cycle uh, in our in our environment, and to truly see that that how you know there is the old way of thinking that that you throw away things, but there is no such place as away on our planet, whether that be organic matter or or that be your your trash or whatever try to observe and see. It's it's very interesting to see the the, the perpetual cycle of, of carbon in our environment. See where it goes, you know, follow that leaf down the stream and see where it goes and, and, and lands itself. I think this is something we could uh, pay a little more attention to.
1: Wow, that is such a fantastic answer to the question. And, you know, that's something that I know that I need to do in my daily life, too. <laughs> I mean, I definitely have the away thing. There is no away. Super good point. There's no away. But I definitely know going forward, I'm going to try to think a little bit harder about the actual carbon also. Thank you, Jonathan.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, a a fantastic answer. And I mean, I think I appreciate too, like the the idea of following the leap down the stream. There's something very peaceful and connective about nature with that too, like, you know, and connecting with the environment knowing that yeah there is no way so yeah i really appreciate that a peaceful thing i think we all need to spend a little bit more time following leafs downstreams but with that thank you so much for coming on it's been a real pleasure i mean we'd love to have you back on in the future to hear more about how your project is going and yeah just thank you yeah thank you ever so much for inviting me this was a real pleasure being here a huge thank you once again to Uniton for coming on and sharing his fascinating insights with us. Please join us next month where we're going to be speaking with Marta Kaskinen about women's movements in Kenya. From the gray rainy season of Lusaka, Zambia and the aurora-filled nights of Helsinki, Finland, I am Christopher Shagnon. On behalf of Sofia hagelani Albab, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.